So this morning I want to uh, continue exploring the theme of self and not self. This uh, sometimes mysterious, sometimes confusing, sometimes exciting, sometimes fascinating, sometimes energizing theme that really is actually at the heart of our practice and uh, certainly was at the heart of the historical practice of the Buddha. So uh, what I want to do today is to particularly focus on the core teachings that we find in the texts of the Buddha, in the discourses of the Buddha. Um, I'll do that after a very, very brief review of where we've been in the last weeks. And so I want to do that review and then I want to really cover three main areas of the traditional teaching. The first is how the Buddha saw our experience in terms of the arising of a sense of self and how we can actually come, this is really the second area, to a sense of um, experience, of looking at our experience without that typical sense of self. And in particular, I want to look at the relationship between a sense of self and the process of thinking and conceptualization. There's a very close relationship. And so it's no coincidence that some of what we learn in meditation is how not to be so dominated by thinking how not to have this kind of automatic mind rule our lives. Because there's a very, there is a very close connection between conceptualization, the thinking process, the predominance of thinking, and being ruled by sometimes rigid senses of self. That's the second area I want to look at. And then thirdly, I want to point to how we practice with this. Because all of these teachings are really oriented in a very practical way. It's probably some of what attracts us here, is that this is all practically based, aiming at a way to become freer and happier. That's it. It's not, it's not to work out conceptual puzzles about self. You know, in, in fact, it may be, as many have uh, conjectured philosophically and so forth that that the um, conundrums of self actually can't be worked out conceptually. I may come back to that. <laughs> and some philosophers, both Buddhist and Western philosophers, have given very elaborate conceptual clarifications of how there can't be conceptual resolution <laughs> of the sense of self. It's kind of like some of, did anyone ever study some of the 20th century work on mathematics and logic? It's kind of like Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which basically, so anyone study that? Okay. Um, but it's basically, it's giving a very elegant proof of how you can't have a full, um, complete, uh, theory. 
whether the, the status of that theory we can ask about. <laughs> okay, so let me begin with a, um, a short reading about the sense of self. This is from uh, one of the great Tibetan teachers of the 20th century, Dogo Kensei Rinpoche. This is what he said. The idea of an enduring self is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. This I is just a thought, a feeling. A thought does not intrinsically possess any solidity, form, shape, or color. The I is merely a label you have given to a transient combination of concepts and attachments to your body, speech, and mind. It is not an absolute. It's a very, it's a very uh, strong statement there. So, in the last weeks, uh, I've slowly taken us really into the territory of exploring uh, self and not self. We started partly by looking at the challenges, the confusions of the territory, the fact that we, when we uh, think about it, it can be very confusing, uh, that the language used is often used, um, the words used are used in very different ways, words like self, words like ego, and so forth are used very differently. We've looked at that. We can keep a certain sense of humor about the whole process because it's, uh, uh, I think that's, that's quite helpful, you know, so... Uh, um, I'll, bring, I'll bring aspects of humor in from time to time here because you know, sometimes it's like one of those uh, do you remember the Woody Allen film where there's sort of a little being inside the body who's sort of controlling everything you know like Woody Allen is having a, you know, like I think a, a sexual encounter and the little being inside gets really excited and you know kind of all the red lights are coming on and, you know, sometimes we imagine the self to be like that, that there's this, what, you know, is called a homunculus. Now there's this little being inside of us that kind of runs, you know, pulls levers at the appropriate time and does this or that. And so, um, what we're exploring is the fact that that is uh, almost certainly a, a mythology, not even found in the research on the brain. They have not found a little being inside. <laughs> Nor even any part of the brain which might uh, correlate with a little being. It's more of a complex set of processes and patterns. Is that a more exciting sense of yourself than your usual one? <laughs> a complex sense of patterns interrelated with other complex sense of patterns. And as I suggested in the um, first sessions, actually a, sh a significant cultural shift in our sense of self is appropriate historically as we need a more of an interdependent sense of self to deal with our massive issues. You know, and that the highly individuated individualist, separate self, primarily looking out for the drama of me. And, you know, and very, very indiv individualist and, and self-centered, which has its value. I don't, I'm not, 
posing that as a negative has its value in an evolutionary point of view, but we've, it may have reached its place where it's becoming counterproductive as that leads to greater and greater individual consumption, you know, uh, resources declining and so forth. So uh, I'll come back to that probably uh, in a few weeks, come back to that sense of the shift in the sense of self being actually very important culturally and historically at this time to help us deal with our, our, our very pressing issues. Okay? I won't go into so much of that, but that is part of how I hold the larger picture uh, of, of questions of self and not self. So we looked at the confusion. We looked at a number of different perspectives by which we can, can, can uh, understand self. And uh, two weeks ago, I looked at the, what I talked about as five ways that the self appears. Because part of our practice is really to look carefully and see when does the self appear in a thick way? When does the self appear in a way which is sort of saying, hey, me, my needs, my demands, I'm not doing well, I need this, I need that, help. Or, I'm cool. <laughs> or, right, um, I look very spiffy in this outfit. I don't know, I don't know if it's, or I look uh, elegant. Or whatever. You know, that we want to see where the sense of uh, self appears in a thick way. And again, not so much to condemn the self, get rid of it, but for the sake of inquiry and for the sake of knowledge. That's really the spirit here. As I, I've mentioned a number of times that there are uses of, uh, of the self, that the, self, the sense of self can, can be skillful at times. Ultimately, the claim is, will be that when we look most deeply, it's a construction. That when we look most deeply at the nature of experience, it's not what we uh, think it is. And so that, that can be unsettling at times. And we've also mentioned how we've probably, I think for probably all of us, have had experiences where there was no sustained experiences, where there was no sense of self, where there was no sense of self-consciousness, often through immersion in activities or being with people we're very close to, where there's no sense of self, no sense of separation. And these have been some of the most wonderful experiences of our lives. And I think are actually pointers to not-self. You know, so I want to, in that sense, normalize both the sense of self as sometimes being useful and skillful. And, uh, you know, and some of the examples I gave were it can be useful to have a sense of self as a meditator or someone who practices every day. I practice every day. You know, we can have a little bit of attachment to it, but that's okay because it gets us to practice. You know, so that there can be a sense of self there or the, there can be maybe pride in our work, which has some use. Again, not an ultimate standpoint, not ultimately something to grasp onto, but as it were, relatively useful in the short run. And that also are, uh, you know, the, the sense of uh, not-self has both a deep and somewhat mysterious meditative meaning, but it also can have very ordinary meanings. And I think we experience not-self all the time. 
And we experience it all the time in meditation and in other ways. In fact, uh, it may be that the self primarily arises when there's some, uh, either some grasping or some aversion. That the self may especially, and otherwise, we're kind of going about things and maybe don't have a big sense of self. It's kind of interesting that the sense of self arises when we want to grasp onto something. It might be my self-image, how I'm appearing in this context. How did that talk go? How did my public presentation go? Or it could be aversion. I don't like what's happening. I don't like how that person spoke to me. Right? Or something that we don't like. Or I don't like, I don't like this feeling in my body. You know, and so forth. And so, again, we'd, so we looked at, especially as a beginning, these five aspects of self a few weeks ago. The aspect of what I call the mere eye, which is without any grasping or aversion. Just the sense of, this is my role, this is what I do, etc. We can have that just in a very descriptive way. Then there are others which are typically a little more connected with some kind of attachment, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle. I talked about the cultural conditioning. Every culture has a certain sense of self, which varies tremendously between cultures. And that, you know, the example I was giving was that way that we may have, many of us have a very individualist sense of self in this culture, a sense of self, maybe an aspiration to be an authentic self, to really value what I want, my aspiration, what I really need, and so forth. And again, I think that has a certain value, but it also has a certain quality of grasping, often somewhat unconscious because everyone's doing the same thing. And again, we can sometimes feel that when we come back from another culture. So, um, is it possible to reserve the questions to the end, or is it a question of clarification? Um, Either, both. I can wait. Okay, yeah, uh, because it'll probably, I want to get out a certain amount of material, and probably flow a little better if I I keep the questions at the end. Um, Then there's the, the social eye, the sense of, we can identify with our roles or how people see us or being old or young or this ethnicity, this gender and so forth. There can be a certain sense of self related to that. There can also be a sense of self related to places that we're stuck. Again, it can be a little more unconscious. If I, you know, if I have um, uh, from my childhood issues of abandonment because my parents divorced when I was very young, I may have certain unconscious you know, sense of self and defenses and vulnerability come up when something seems to trigger that sense of abandonment. You know, when, my, when I'm working on the job late at night and my coworker leaves me to finish the report by myself. You know? And it could trigger something that's there in my more unconscious territory and a very thick sense of self comes and I may not know that a thick sense of self is coming. So there's a certain, that's where Western psychology can be very helpful at pointing out certain aspects of self. And then the last aspect I talked about was the sense of uh, a more subtle distinction between subject and object, between knower and known, which is uh, more subtle and something that we often need to have the mind be rather quiet to notice, a sense of I am a separate being from you. I am separate from this book or this lamp. 
And we can have uh, meditative experiences in which we don't notice that, but there's that sense of self which uh, we can also remember. So the teachings of the Buddha, which again I'm organizing in terms of the core teachings about self and not self, and then particularly focusing on how the sense of self is connected with concepts, and then thirdly pointing to practices. Those three ways I'll look at it. Um, The Buddha was particularly concerned with how a sense of self arises from some kind of grasping or uh, aversion, often of a compulsive kind, in relationship to some constituent of experience. And And so the investigation in meditation becomes crucial. We want to see how we do that. And he particularly pointed to the way that um, the way that we can grasp or push away in some strong and often compulsive way uh, five aspects of experience. These, these are what he's called the skandhas or the khandhas. Khandhas is Pali, skandhas is uh, in Sanskrit, and these are usually translated as the aggregates. And it, it, uh, the, the sense is that uh, it was also the aggregates where it would be like the bundles, like if one had a bunch of bundles of wood and you had a bunch of piles, that would have be, I think, the same word in that language. And so we have that sense of little collections. And so what he's saying is that we are actually, I mean, again, it has some analogies to current research on the brain. We are a bunch of collections of different assemblages of experiences, and he named five of them. And the five, again, we looked at these in the guided meditation, the five are form, feeling tone, perception, uh, what was called formations, which we can more or less think of as thoughts and emotions, particularly habitual ones, and then lastly, consciousness. And the invitation in practice is to see, can I be with these five aspects and see where a sense of self arises. And the, the uh, teaching is that it's possible, and we explore this in meditation, we can be with each of those without necessarily having a sense of self arise, where we can see how a sense of self uh, does arise from, the, um, from those experiences. So the cultural context, the the Buddha in questioning the sense of self was questioning what we would call now the prevailing Hindu model of his time in which the self was something independent, permanent, uh, stable, unchanging, and something which had a certain degree of control uh, over experience. A little bit like that little man or woman inside of us that presses the levers in the right way to make things happen. That kind of is central control inside of, the, inside of our being. And, and the Buddha is questioning that and finding that um, the typical uh, finding when we look at experience is that we don't find that in experience very much like the, um, a number of Western philosophers. Interestingly, there was a British philosopher, some of you read in Philosophy 101, 
David Hume, mm -hmm. Scottish philosopher living in the 18th century, who said that when we look at experience, we don't find the self. Interestingly, he said, all we find are bundles of experiences. Almost the same language as the Buddha. Very, very striking. And so the, uh, the first of these is form. So the training will be, can I look at my different experiences and learn to be just with the experience in a direct way? This goes back to a series I gave I think about a year and a half ago, which was called Getting Down to Direct Experience. And we can really see how this is all a teaching of trying to be with experience in a more and more direct way. Can I be with material experiences of the body, of the senses? And notice how a sense of self arises. It could be that I'm there um, watching a sunset, right? I'm watching a sunset. The, the senses are working in my eyes. This is what the Buddha would call the first aggregate, that of form. And I can see, I can notice my eyes. I see these shapes, these colors. And how does a sense of self arise? Well, it might arise, this is really cool. I should do this again. <laughs> right? And at that moment, we're not actually experiencing it. It's interesting that a lot of our experience of wonderful, beautiful sense experiences brings in the sense of self. I, mean, I remember as a young man, you know, maybe 20, being really amazed that I could not really just stay with a sunset and experience it. My mind was so active right? in, in thinking and making plans, uh, you know, and making plans about the next sunset <laughs> and what a great sunset this is and comparing it with other sunsets, all of which actually take us away from the direct experience of the sunset. Right? Or I think we do this a lot with food. We have all these ideas about how wonderful it would be to have this meal and eat this. And then when we're actually eating it, do we actually taste it in the present moment? Well, maybe sometimes. But a lot of the times, what are we doing? We may be talking. Maybe that's part of the nice experience. But we may, not, we may be even thinking about what we're going to do next or in the afternoon. And so there's this way that part of the meditative training is to learn to be simply with the experience of the senses and notice where that sense of self arises. Can I be with my body? Can I be with the body and notice when a sense of self arises about my body? You know, like, can I be with, um, can I be with this experience or that experience? And so we can train in this in a meditative way. We can just be with the breath and just be with the sensation. So part of that training is to just be at the level of sensation and notice what we add to it. It's quite simple. Notice where a sense of self arises. And again, it particularly will come up when there's some kind of grasping or aversion. That's going to be where the sense of self typically arises. Uh, and the, you know, the, the three things that take us out of direct experience are grasping, aversion, and delusion. <laughs> Grasping, the holding on and ideas form, aversion, pushing away often with a lot of thoughts. And delusion would just mean I'm with the sunset and I'm spaced out, right? I'm somewhere else. I'm thinking about the Olympics. <laughs> I'm thinking about 
next weekend, right? So sort of spaced out, so not really present. So, so all of those will typically involve some sense of self. The second area is feeling tone. And again, we're encouraged to study the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in the moment. We've done that a lot, I think, in the, you know, at Spirit Rock we teach this a lot because it's also the study of feeling tone is the second foundation of mindfulness. And so we often look at how a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral arises and how it's sometimes hard to be just with the sense of pleasant or just with the sense of unpleasant that we tend to, the mind tends to get active when there is a uh, sense of pleasant or unpleasant. Like if it's very unpleasant, we, you know, got to do something about it. And so again, what we, again, some of this can be skillful, but some, you know, it can involve a sense of self in a skillful way. If I'm experiencing unpleasant sensations in my body and I sense that it may be something that I could address for the health of the body, that would be skillful. There'd still be a sense of self, but it's skillful. And it can often be very unskillful, right? So um, I can have a sense of self and I can uh, be very conditioned to just not want to be with anything unpleasant whatsoever. And again, I think in our culture, that's often a, con- that's often a conditioning. And part of what we learn in meditation is to be present with what's unpleasant. Unpleasant experience in the body, unpleasant emotions, and just see what's there and just see the typical conditioning. So again, very powerful practice. Can I just be with the unpleasant or the pleasant or the neutral and just be with it? Can I watch a sense of self arising when, the, when, that's, when that's there? You know, and the, the, you know, the, this sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is so powerful because there's very strong conditioning with the pleasant to grasp and with the unpleasant to push away almost compulsively or impulsively or unconsciously. And again, we can, it can sometimes be skillful, but what we explore in meditation is that it's often very compulsive and not coming out of necessarily out of wisdom, but just out of habit. The third aspect is perception, uh, and it's usually translated as perception. The word is sana, and it, it actually is not uh, limited to perception of the external world. It could also mean the recognition of um, a thought or something or, or of an internal emotion. It can, in other words, the aspect is basically recognizing something as having certain qualities. So it it relies on memory. Perception is dependent on memory, and it typically involves a certain amount of thought. So it would be, I obviously could perceive a tree, or perceive a table, perceive a shirt, perceive a chair. Those are all memory. And what's very interesting about this is that in meditation, we can actually go beneath the level of perception. And many of us probably experience this. We can actually see uh, how we can be with what we would call a tree without going to the concept of tree and just be with what we might call the raw sense data. And and it's very interesting because when there is recognition and memory, um, 
it can often go in all sorts of directions and proliferate in the mind. And so that it is very interesting that we actually have to learn to perceive that memory and even culture uh, are connected with perception. You know, that we and the Eskimos would look out to what we call snow and we wouldn't see the same thing, right? I think we know that, or that children have to be trained to perceive. I've told the story sometimes of how with my nephew Cameron, I think I may, I was with him at one point when I think he saw the full moon for the first time. It was quite an experience, like he was, we were there and I pointed out this big, you know, incredibly yellow, what we would call moon. (laughs) I pointed and I said, that's the moon. He said, moon. (laughs) You know, and we have to, uh, we have to learn to perceive. You know, we have to learn to perceive. We don't, there's not, you know, it's interesting uh, when we go closely into experience that what we call reality uh, isn't as solid and determined as we think it is. Sorry to break the news. <laughs> but when we look closely at perception, we see this. For, for example, other species don't see the world in the same way we do. You know, there was a great experiment done some time ago, uh, and it was, I think, published in an article called What's the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain? Frogs essentially organize all of experience into four categories. And unfortunately, none of those categories is me or you. The four categories are, I think, I don't know if I remember all of them, but I'll just give you an example. One of the categories is something very small moving across the field, which would be the signal for... <laughs> the tongue coming out. Another category is, we would, we would translate it as large shadow coming across the field, which would mean skedaddle. <laughs> get, get out of there. Some you know, possible predator. Um, you know, and then probably I think there's something also with light and dark and so forth. But you get the idea. They're, they are not seeing tree, you know, paper, Donald, Debbie, right? They organize experience differently. And again, other different cultures do it differently. And human beings don't necessarily uh, uh, see the world with objects. It takes memory and it takes training. You know, the peop- there have been people who have been, for example, blind all their lives who have had their sight restored. I think there was a film about that. You know, there was a... There was a and... Uh, they have found that when people have their sight restored, they have to go through a long and sometimes painful period of training to see the world. The world is not out there in the object form waiting for us. And, some, and what we do sometimes in meditation is we actually go beneath the level of perception. Perception is a place also where self can arise. We see this object and it can trigger associations, and trigger, trigger all sorts of uh, memories. Uh, it can be very oriented towards towards a sense of self. You know, this is most evident when in human life, 
when, you know, it was like in the film Rashomon, where was it like four different people see what supposedly the same scene, and they have totally different interpretations, all based on their self uh, perspective. You know, or there have been a lot of social psychological studies of this. So particularly, there was one famous one where there was like a, a big fight among football fan, fans, I think at a Harvard or at a Dartmouth-Yale football game. And they did, a, they did interviews with the people on either side, and they found they had totally different perceptions about what <coughs> happened. Right? And this comes out in courtrooms all the time. So it's very interesting, right? So what's real? You know, where does self come in? Self is very connected with perception. The, the fourth area is called formations. And this is, um, we could think of as especially thoughts and emotions, and particularly habitual ones. And so in our practice, we watch and we study thoughts and emotions. Can I just have thoughts and emotions occur without a sense of self arising? To what extent when I have particular thoughts, do they trigger other thoughts, trigger other thoughts, and I'm off to the races, right? That's what we study in meditation. What this is pointing to is the possibility even of having thoughts and emotions and just seeing them come and go. When the mind gets quiet, we can actually stay with thoughts and emotions almost as if we are watching a TV screen and there's just something, there's a thought coming, it comes, it goes, more out of a background of quiet and silence. That's why the concentration which helps the mind get quiet is very important for this investigation, to be able to be with thoughts without having them uh, take over. (coughs) And the fifth area is consciousness. And this would be the, uh, really, the aspect in which uh, all of our experiences have an aspect of consciousness. Consciousness of uh, our experience with this sense, consciousness of thoughts, really referring to all the other four areas. And so what this teaching is pointing to is that um, we can look at experience and see how self arises. And we can particularly see how um, self may be connected with a concept, with concepts. And some of the, um, maybe I'll look at, you can look at the handout very uh, briefly to see some of these uses of, of um, uh, self and seeing how they are more conceptual. So if you look at the third quotation, it says, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be formless is a conceiving. I shall be percipient is a conceiving. I shall be not in percipient is a conceiving. By overcoming all conceiving, one is called a sage at peace. And so conceiving here is very much related to our, one of our favorite words, papancha. Remember papancha? Often translated as conceptual, conceptual proliferation and the sense of concepts. And this, this, this would be translated in some of these passages as conceiving and imagining. And it's, it particularly is not related to the sort of the neutral, simple use of concepts, but the way in which there's some going beyond experience, going beyond the, the givens of experience and adding something and particularly proliferating. So sometimes it's said that the 
this aspect of conceptual proliferation has aspects of um, reifying, exaggerating, distorting, proliferating. You know, and we can particularly see that in a lot of our habitual thinking. You know, that it actually sometimes um, uh, keeps on happening, feeds on itself, and goes round in circles. That's a lot of that sense of that, of that conceptual proliferation. In fact, one of the metaphors, it's not in one of the quotes here, but one of the metaphors used for the self in the teachings of the Buddha is like a dog being tied to a post and running around, continually running around, always bound to that post. And the analogy is our experience is like that, tied to a rigid sense of self and going around in circles with it. So it's a, um, something that we can look at, and I think we probably know this with our habitual thinking, right? With certain habitual patterns, we get triggered, something difficult happens, and we just go into this loop. We could, we, in English, we call it a tape loop, right? And, and that's what's particularly being pointed to, to look to, look, to look to how that sense of self is a conceptualizing. And it's, in the second quote, it's also looked at that way. In whatever way they conceive of self, the truth is ever other than that. <laughs> it's a powerful one. Again, I think the truth is really referring to more that sense of direct experience and seeing the conceiving as going way beyond it. And again, we looked at that in some length uh, a year and a half ago or so. And then maybe I'll read the last one I'll read is an example of conceptual proliferation. The first quotation This is how one attends inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future? Or or else he is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? So... That's one of the examples, actually, of the Buddhist humor. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, a lot of the humor doesn't come out so well in translation. So, <laughs> um, so you get the idea. And then in some of the later passages, it's um, you know, like number four. He says, an untaught ordinary person regards material form as self, and then goes through these aggregates, meaning that, as in the examples I gave, we identify with the form or with the senses, regards, regards um, uh, feeling. Here, feeling would better be, that's the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It doesn't mean emotion, it means feeling tone. And then, and then it says, when one trains, maybe we can go to this, um, one of the, the last part of quotation four, any kind of material form, whatever, one sees it as it actually is, with proper wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. That's the direction, the practice. So we see that link between thinking and conceptualization. And again, I want to hold all of this, recognizing that certain uses of self are skillful, but this teaching is also pointing, what we might say, beyond any use of any sense of self, to a deeper understanding. And it's that deeper understanding of being able to experience in a sustained way without a sense of self. 
which is especially occurs in the training of meditation, that gives us much more freedom to use a sense of self skillfully. Otherwise, there, there tends to be grasping. And so the practice that we're really encouraged is to, again, I think, do these three forms of practice mentioned last time. First, see and study when the sense of self becomes thick. Without judging it, without condemning it. Secondly, see if you can open up and notice times when there isn't any sense of self, both in ordinary experience, as we've looked at, and also in meditative experience, as in the guided meditations, when we can just be with the senses without adding a sense of self, or if we notice it, we just come back. And we can stay with all of these aspects of experience increasingly uh, without a sense of self. I think next week I'm going to actually, maybe I'll come back some to the sense of what is the skillful use of self, as well as to what, we, what is being pointed to beyond, uh, beyond the self. Maybe those two aspects that I think might be appropriate. And we, so we look to what the experience of not-self is, and this is really takes ongoing, dedicated looking. <laughs> And continue and practice. And retreats can be particularly helpful because we get the critical um, mass almost of concentration. Because, because the thinking process is so connected with a sense of self, we need sometimes that uh, mm, development of the settled mind so the mind is not as active in order to experience that sense of not self in a sustained way, which is very freeing and liberating. And then we can experience that, and even if we come back to a busy life, we know that that's a way that we can perceive things, or where we can experience things. And then the third aspect was holding all of this with a sense of compassion and loving-kindness, because this is challenging, you know? And as I mentioned last time, I told the story of my own challenges, watching my sense of self, sometimes in a retreat, fall away. But that was hard. It was scary at times, it was challenging, and that we have to really hold all of this with uh, compassion, with loving-kindness, with care. And so I recommend, if you're really wanting to look into self and not-self a lot, also do loving-kindness practice. Do some heart-based practice. I think I'll end with this um, last quote. Um, The Buddha says, Well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. So again, this is right at the heart of the teaching. It's a challenging teaching but it also points uh, quite wonderfully and quite deeply. And uh, the aim here is to make it less mysterious, more connected with our ordinary experience, but also a horizon of our practice, sort of an edge of our practice uh, that takes some uh, staying with it and some effort to really keep going with this. So I'll stop for a moment and then we can have just a little bit of time for, for comments or questions.
So, um, comments or questions? Let me take yours first, please. From a lot, a lot of the Dharma talks I've heard and the teachings, I think what's helped me kind of understand this is yeah. I've heard it said that there's no solid sense yeah. of self, and, not a, and just, you know, that idea that we're not solid makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and I've kind of thought of myself as um, a process. Yeah. You know? Well, all of us, what's going on is a process that's ever-changing. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the comment is about the, you know, in this sometimes challenging uh, teaching of not-self, it's been helpful for, your name is? Margie. That for Margie to uh, remember the, sometimes the emphasis is that it's really a questioning of a solid, or a, we might say a separate, independent self. It's not disregarding every sense of self. It's really pointing to a particular type of self that's problematic and that being having a sense of myself is more like a process is something that you have found useful. And, and we can generalize that really also to say some people want to unpack the teaching of not-self as it were more positively and talk about interdependence. And then I mentioned how sometimes we get, uh, I think, uh, in, in the phrase of the philosopher Wittgenstein, he said we get bewitched by language sometimes. There are certain aspects of our experience which have a very strong emphasis, particularly in this culture. Language uh, and the way we use the concept of self, like, I'm happy. That sure sounds like there's a self there to be happy. Who would, or, uh, you know, I, I am happy, or, um, you know, I've got a cold. You know, it sounds like you know, I'm the one who kind of collects experiences. <laughs> and other cultures don't, have, don't use language in the same way. So there, there are ways that we, can, uh, that we get bewitched by language or I think also by vision. And I mentioned how with some of our senses or some of our faculties, there's much more of a sense of interdependence. I think emotions are more like that. We think of the, the limbic system in terms of the brain. It's more of a sense of interconnection. And a lot of our, or maybe even even certain perspective, you think of people talking together. If you were just focusing on the talking, it would sure be a lot more like one unified conversation, you know, which has all this intermingling and one person's thoughts influence another, which influence another. There are a lot of perspectives where we can see that sense of process or interconnection. Uh, and we, we somehow get very fixated, I was mentioning last time, I think by language, which tends to make it sound like there's separation by vision, which tends to, with perception, create separate objects. Our sense of touch doesn't do that in the same way, right? Or some of our other senses, our hearing doesn't exactly always do that in the same way. And uh, also, I think our sense of uh, body, the sense of you know an indiv- having an individual body, uh, tends to make us focus a lot on a sense of a separate self, and so. Cultivating a sense of interconnection can be one way of processing it. What the Buddha was criticizing when he has a teaching of not-self is a particular fixed sense of separate self. You know, and and in West, in, there are other concepts of self present which don't fall under the same criticism. You know. On the other hand, the teaching is radical in the sense of pointing to... Um, uh, about how any grasping of any kind is ultimately problematic. You know? 
in the short run, it can be skillful, as I mentioned. You know, I think it would be skillful now for people in the world to develop a sense of interdependent self with other people in the world. That would be very, very skillful for dealing with certain problems. It may not be an ultimate truth, but it's very skillful. So, uh, Marty, please. I have some difficulty understanding uh, consciousness in this discussion and awareness of interdependence. (coughs) Would that be an example of consciousness? I'm just having a hard time. I've heard that consciousness has to do with dharma, and I'm just having a hard time understanding the distinction between consciousness and recognizing thought and feeling. Is it, is it a, mm-hmm. a more uh, holistic kind of awareness of how all of these things... Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mari. Really a question about the, what we mean by consciousness and how it relates to maybe awareness of interdependence <laughs> and other things. And it's a good question because uh, there are at least three different terms that we could use which have different meanings which all seem close. One would be consciousness as a translation of the word uh, vijnana. And the second would be mindfulness. And the third would be, we sometimes use the word awareness. And we can give three different meanings to those. Consciousness in the sense of being one of the skandhas is a consciousness of an object. And it means, um, it, and it, it's not necessarily mindfulness. In other words, I can be, you know, I, I, I can be writing and conscious of this pen without being mindful of the pen in the sense of feeling it and being aware that I'm writing and so forth. So does that make sense? That there can be, I can be, uh, you know, people are um, driving and they're conscious. They're conscious of, conscious means that there's just a relationship of, Sometimes we say it's the knowing faculty, but it's not self-conscious or not mindful in that sense. Mindfulness is a further development that we say, you know, it's like, um, you know, I'm holding this pen and I have to be conscious to do that, but I'm not necessarily mindful of the pen. Does that distinction make some sense or does it need a little more work? (laughs) And then awareness would be a third distinct, third term, and that would be, you know, uh, and it's used in different ways, but in the text, there, there's, there's um, for example, in the text, there can be awareness without a sense of uh, uh, separation. Consciousness is always, we might say, intentional. It, there's a, a knowing of something. Consciousness is always, in that sense, uh, dualistic. It's always a knowing and an object, and it arises. It's not necessarily mindful. Mindful would be something else. And it is always dualistic. And there also is an awareness, which we might say might be a more interdependent awareness, without a sense of self. In that sense, we might say that consciousness presupposes something like a sense of self. Something like a sense of self. and there's a kind of awareness which goes beyond a sense of self. It could be a sense of interdependence. Or a, and that's, 
not talked about so much, and that's different from the, uh, one of the aggregates. So there are at least three different uses of something which could be rather similar. Consciousness, which is always aware of an object, but not necessarily mindful. You know, again, we can... Children are conscious when they eat their food, right? They're conscious of eating the food, but they're not mindful. Maybe that's a better example. So we, we, consciousness is working all the time for human beings. Mindfulness is not necessarily working that much. Mindfulness is a kind of knowing that we are experiencing something. So it's, we might say it's a kind of reflective consciousness. Or, uh, so does that help some? Getting closer. <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you. Um, Yeah. Did you have one last one? Anyone? Anything else? So my, uh, if not, my, my encouragement then for practice would be to um, pra- continue to practice in those three ways. And you can see where your own edge is. Number one, study when the sense of self becomes thick. Stay with it. No, you can do that in meditation, in the flow of daily life. When you're driving, if you're driving back home, someone cuts you off, notice if a sense of self arises. <laughs> notice if a sense of other arises. Again, we're not, try, we're not saying all sense of self go away. We're not saying that. We're just wanting to notice how self becomes what I'm, I'm using the word thick. And the practice that we do, we could be said to be leading to a thinning of the self. So I'm using the metaphor of thick and thin. Um, so first, see when, the, when, see when self appears. You can take notes on it. Keep it, you know, go get a notebook and take notes. It's very, very interesting. Uh, you can also use the guided meditation we did to see how more precisely, sometimes when you're meditating, how, which of the aggregates a sense of self is arising from? Is it arising from one of my senses, something related to the body? Is it, a, is it arising from the feeling tone, not liking something, liking something? Is it arising from perception and the mind proliferating? Is it arising from a lot of thinking? Is it arising from habitual thinking? Is it a habitual pattern of thinking and so forth? So you can be a little more precise and say, when does the, how does the self, self, sense of self arise there? And then secondly, tune into when there's not so much a sense of self. And I was suggesting that if the sense of self particularly arises when we are either grasping or pushing away, the rest of the time, you might not have that much of a sense of self there, except in more subtle ways. There might not be a thick sense of self. You're just doing your work, you know? And there could be just a very, not so much, and, to, and sometimes tune into that. What is that like? When there's neither some strong pushing away or some strong grasping. And is there, what's the sense of self there? It might be rather thin, you know? Or also look into those experiences in meditation in which you're just with the different senses, just with the different experiences without much of a sense of self and the experiences in 
the ordinary flow of daily life, you know, where you're maybe immersed in the activity with someone you're really caring about, no self-consciousness, and what is that like? Those, I think, are experiences also of not-self. And again, I think we often take those experiences to me among our most powerful and beautiful experiences in our whole lives. I mean, in a way, love is going beyond a rigid sense of self, right? What we call love, what we call immersion in nature, what we call friendship, community, often when we look at them closely, we will find not-self right at the heart of it. I think so, trying to help make this teaching not quite so mysterious. I think it's kind of ordinary in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of creativity and play, the work of artists, musicians, very much, uh, when we look at it closely, we'll find not-self there, right at the heart of creativity, actually. Very interesting. You know, when you look at artists, there, there are a lot of passages where it sounds very much like not-self. I am just immersed in the activity. And then the last thing is the metta. I, b- I better finish because of time, Liz, sorry. But we can, we can talk afterwards. But were you going to add one, one comment? Yeah, then, then grasping. Yeah. yeah, playing with ideas, creative thinking. Having insights. Having insights can be quite wonderful. So there are a lot of little nuances and subtleties here. So third practice is if you're, doing, if you're looking at self a lot, remember loving kindness. Remember the heart. Okay, so may are looking into self and not self in ordinary and extraordinary ways be of benefit to ourselves and others. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.